0: If you're new here, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and this week we are in Mark chapter 4, we're in verses 35 through 41, and I, I want to just tell you that, that this entire uh, part of Mark here is, is just, I, I just love it. It's, it, I always say this, but it's, it's like one of my favorite parts of the Bible, but... Um, it's just there's, there's so much in here, and there's just so much depth. There's so much that we can get, and we can glean about the nature and the character of this God that we're talking about. So this morning, we've called it uh, Concealed and Revealed. There's a, there's a saying that says this. It says that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed, and, and so you know, there there's a lot of teaching out there, a lot of a lot of kind of bad teaching, I think. Uh, a lot of Christians, a lot of pastors that would say something like, "Well, well, you know really that the Old Testament isn't relevant to us today or that 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 it really doesn't count because of the New Testament. And, and, and certainly, Jesus has moved us into no less than a New Testament. but but the the Old Testament, it is far from being something that's irrelevant for us today. I think it actually that when we begin to look at the Old and the New Testament together and we begin to kind of see those as one thing, as one cooperative um, uh, assembly, a library of books, then we begin to really see the depth and how profound this, this, this book, the Bible, is to us. Um, and we have to understand, too, that, that, that the Bible is one whole counsel of God's word to us. Um, And so uh, what what I think that that when we start to look at, what I want to really get us to look at today is that that thread that's weaving these these books together. We've talked about that there's a thread that's woven through the entire Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. And and it's this thread that, that really begins to show us and reveal to us that Jesus isn't just the God of the New Testament, that he is the God of the Old Testament. He is the creator. He is, he is Yahweh. He is, he is the one true God that we um, are speaking about through the entirety of this. And so the Old Testament, it reveals several things to us. One thing that shows us is the original intention of what God designed and what God desired for humanity. He, he desired perfect relationship in a perfect place forever. This is the heart and the intention of God, and we see that in Genesis. Um, we see also, too, that we basically went our own way, that we went astray from God, that humanity fell because we were disobedient, because before this tree, God instituted free will to us, and he told us, don't do this, don't eat of, the, of this tree, the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But we went our own way, and in that going our own way, we fell. And we understand now that there's a fallen nature to humanity, that there's a, a sinful element at the core of who we are, which is why no matter how long we get down this path, or again, no matter how great our technological advances be, uh, are going on in the world around us, we still have this core element of evil that exists with us. And so the technology that we, that we create that has the capacity for great good also has the capacity for great evil. Um, not because the technology has a problem with it, but because the users and the, uh, the creators of that technology do. Uh, we see the righteous nature of God in the Old Testament. We also get to look into and understand what the wrath of God looks it looks like. It, if, if we didn't have the Old Testament to kind of view some of those kinds of things, we wouldn't really understand or comprehend the reality of what we've been saved from, the, the, the reality of this God who is righteous and therefore must judge, What's wrong? So we get this glimpse of this. We see the law. We see prophetic and apocalyptic literature in the uh, Old Testament. And we see everything about this. Every single book of it is a a vision of the Messiah who's to come. Every book of the Bible is about Jesus. It's filled with the foreshadowings of Messiah through all of it, and especially even through a lot of the sacrificial systems. When we look at something like Passover, what we see is this idea of a people who were in bondage, who were enslaved, who were then led free and taken out of that bondage and delivered into another place with another destination. That slavery was no longer uh, just the thing that they had to just deal with, but, but being led out of that through impossible circumstances by God into freedom and into ultimately a promised land. This is the journey of of God's people, and it's our journey nonetheless as well, that we are a people who are journeying out of slavery and into freedom and ultimately into the promised land. Remember, the final curse of that was was the Passover, and and that was to where each family was to take um, in a lamb, and they were to sacrifice that lamb and to place the blood over their doorposts and on the sides of their doorposts. And in doing that, then the angel of death would cross, would pass over them. The firstborn of their household would not die, but would live. And again, it's this picture that because of this lamb, because of the sacrifice that is given, that the angel of death passes over and we have life. So these these sacrificial systems all point to Jesus, to the Messiah, to who he was, who he is and what he would represent. He, the, the day of Yom Kippur, or the day of of atonement for the Jewish people. There were two goats, and and upon one goat, the the sins of the people was conferred. There was lots were cast, and one was selected. And then the priest would confer the sins of the people for the year upon that goat, and that was taken out into the wilderness and set free, while the goat that had no sin upon it became the sacrifice that would pay the penalty uh, for the sins of the people that day. Remember again that, that when uh, John the Baptist saw Jesus, his words were, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When we talked a, a little while back about the, the healing of the leper in, in Mark, that, that he was told to go back to the priest and to offer the sacrifice for having been cleansed of leprosy. And remember, leprosy is, is that analogy that, that the Bible uses for sin that's in us. It's this disease of the flesh that's in there that, that has the capacity to cost us everything. And, and the picture for being uh, cleansed of that was two birds, right? Two clean birds. One was offered as the sacrifice and its blood was mixed with living water. The, the other bird was then dipped and immersed in that, wo- in that in that living water. There was hyssop and there was some, some wood that was involved and all of these things that, that, that kind of give us a picture of the cross. And then that bird, after having been cleansed and, and totally just covered in that, was then taken out to a, a field and set free. It's a picture, again, of, of what has happened to us as we have been freed in this. See, all of this is, is, is this picture of, of really of continuity of all of this, these things that, that God is, as he's doing a new thing, he's also taking the old things and he's working those into the whole story and the picture. And we're really going to kind of go in, we're going to look at a few different events out of the Old Testament. But um, Hebrews tells us this, in Hebrews 8:5, it says that they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent or the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And, and so... What Hebrews is telling us is that everything, even in our earthly experience that we have and and that God has instituted, is a picture, it's a shadow, it's a foreshadowing of the reality of heaven. And so even heaven and earth and our experience here, it's all of these things are intricately tied together. When we see a lot of the characters in the, the people of the Old Testament, people like Isaac, who was the son of promise. Right? The one by whom the, the, the blessing would come and it would come to all people and all nations. And Abraham was told that through him, through this son, that, that your descendants would be like the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. We see Joseph, right? Who is who is this one who is betrayed deeply by his brothers, but yet ultimately is, is brought to a place of prominence and becomes the place of deliverance for them providing for them, and the great statement at the end of, in Genesis with that, where, where, uh, where he says that what the enemy or what Satan has intended for evil, that God has worked for good. Um, we see Jonah, who who is really kind of the, the anti-Jesus, kind of the antithesis to who Jesus is, and we're actually going to look at Jonah some today. We see Joshua, who who is the, the great victor, the one, the deliverer, who ultimately, um, through battle and all of these things, delivered the people into the promised land and then, and then made a way for them, uh, for, uh, for God and for his people. We see Christophanes in the Old Testament, which is an appearance of Jesus prior to the New Testament. See, if Jesus has always been, right? He's always been. We see him show up in the Old Testament. One place that's really clear is, is when he's talking to Joshua and, and Joshua goes up to him, he sees the, the angel of the armies of the Lord, and he says, hey, are, are you for us or against us? And he just says, nah, <laughs> you know, like, neither one. Um, I'm here, and I'm doing what I'm doing. Not kind of just, you know, for you or against you. I'm, I'm doing what, what, what I'm doing. And he tells, he tells uh, Joshua there, he says, take your shoes off, because the place that you are on is holy ground the same way as Moses, when he went to the burning bush, was told to take his shoes off because he was on holy ground. We see that, that, that this at times this angel of the Lord is ascribed to worship, and he never says, don't worship me. He never says any of those things. He's ascribed to worship, and he's worthy of it because he is the pre-incarnate Jesus. So as we kind of uh, look through these things, we start to realize too That the whole Bible, that the Bible begins this way. It begins in a garden, and it begins with an issue about a tree. Jesus' ministry, if you think about it, it ends in a garden, a garden of Gethsemane, right? A place of suffering and sorrow and struggle and all of these things. And ultimately, it also, too, ends before this idea of a tree or a cross. Philippians tells us that, that Jesus poured or emptied himself out, right? Being coming, becoming like a man, and, and that, that, um, that he humbled himself even to the point of death, even death upon a cross. Some translations say even death upon a tree. And it's that idea that, that, that where we were given this garden and we were given this place um, of perfection and perfect relationship to God, but before this tree and before the issue of this tree, we were disobedient. Well, when Jesus comes to redo this, He's redoing everything. Jesus isn't just kind of walking around all of the circumstances. As he comes to redeem, he's redeeming even the very situation and scenario. So we find him in a garden at the end of his ministry, and then we see him obedient before this tree that was the solution to our disobedience. There's this wonderful thread that is woven through the whole thing. And so what I want to do before we get into Mark and before we get into our text, I want to look back and I really want us to get this idea of of the connection here of these different events that we're looking at in the Old Testament. We see here in Genesis uh, chapter 22, we see the sacrifice of a son, this son of promise, Isaac, right, that that Abraham is told by God right here in Genesis. Chapter 22, he says, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering, as one of the mountains of which, on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham arose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, my father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And the story goes on, and we see, we see this, this picture, and we see this continuity of this, of this event to Jesus, right? We, we see a father and a son, and they're going on a journey. And, and, and part of this journey is, is to offer this, a sacrifice, right? And this journey, interestingly, is a three-day journey. And they go, and, they, and ultimately, they end up on this place, and it says that the son carries the wood to the top of the hill, Right where he then is, is given in this place and he's put on this, this, this altar to be the sacrifice. And then his father, ultimately, at the very last second, an angel says, stop, don't do it. Stop, don't do it. Don't, don't do it. And then there's an interesting thing that it says, now I know that you love me because you have not withheld your son, your only son. And, and, and so sometimes we're like, man, why did God do that to Abraham? Why did He why did He put him through that? And I think that the answer to that is because we need that. The answer is that we need to understand what that would look like. What we if we personalize that, see, because what that does to us when we read that story, we're like, God, don't ask me to do that. Don't ask me to put my son in that place. And I think the other thing that happens is that many times we tend to minimize. What has happened with that, with, this, with, with the sacrifice that God was offering? But see, this pulls us into this place, and it pulls us into this, to this event ourselves to where we are just part of the agony of what's going on, as we imagine having to maybe do that ourselves. But you see, the plan was never that Abraham would have to offer his son. The plan always was that God would offer his son. John 3, 16, right? Now we know this, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, the, the, the events and the things that we're talking about as they shape up, they're, they're not there on accident. They're not random events. These are events that are tied intricately together that demonstrate to us that this is a story that only God could have put together. Over thousands of years even, that God has woven this whole thing together. If we went to Genesis, what we would see next about Isaac, remember, he's the son of promise. He's the one that, that God has said, through him, all of these great promises are going to come to be. Well, when we get to chapter 24, we see an interesting thing happen, and it says that, that basically that there's a search for a bride for Isaac. Chapter 24 of Genesis. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom we dwell, but will go to my country, to my kindred, and take a wife for my son Isaac. So basically, Abraham makes his his servant promised him, do not get a wife for my son from these people. Do not do it. I don't want these people, I don't want my son to have a wife from these people. Go back to where I'm from, the better place, and go get a wife for him there, okay? So jumping forward to about verse 14. This is the servant who's now went on the journey, and he's went back, and he's he's there. And he says, let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who, sh- and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels? Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all of his camels. So let's think about this. So, so this bride for Isaac, she, um, she, the, the, the servant says, look, um, let, let this one who, who, when I say, give me a drink, that she does, that she responds to that. And that's exactly what we see. So, so the servant sits down, he's waiting by the well, and, and the, the, she comes along and he says, give me a drink. And she says, oh, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Here, have a drink, and then also, let me draw water for your camels as well. And it says that she's beautiful. She's perfect. She's pure. There's every, everything, and she has everything going for her that, that you would want to see. And, and he says, and she's so agreeable, and so sweet, and you know, water's even as camels, which is a big deal, because camels drink like a lot of water, right? And, and so it's this picture of this bride and she becomes the one who is the, 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 the bride for Isaac. Well, now if we jump forward, let's go to New Testament again, John chapter four. John chapter four, we see this, um, starting in, uh, in verse three. It says, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What an interesting picture here that, that now we see that Jesus is sitting beside this well. And when this woman comes up, he also says, give me a drink, right? Although, although she isn't nearly as responsive. She's actually pretty snarky about it, right? She's like, why are you even asking me for a drink? right? How come you, a Jewish man, would talk to me, a Samaritan woman? Remember where he's at. He's in Samaria. He didn't go to the great land. He didn't go to the land that was, you know, he's, he's in the place where none of the Jews even want to step foot because they can't stand the Samaritans. But here he is, and he's sitting by this well, and he's saying, give me a drink. Only her response isn't like, oh, absolutely, and let me, let me, let me do even more and, and above. But his response is about what he will do for her, He basically tells her, look, you're you're drinking out of the wrong well. The the thing that you think was going to satisfy you and provide for you is just going to leave you thirsty again. It won't satisfy you. But I have something that will satisfy you. Her response is, well, who do you think you are? You don't even have anything to draw water from. You know, the other one is drawing water. Jesus finally challenges her with with the idea. Finally, she says, okay, I'll I'll, I'll take that deal. of course, I'm paraphrasing at this point. I'll take that deal. And he says, okay, go get your husband. And she's like, I don't have a husband. And he's like, you're right, you've had five. And the guy you're with right now isn't your husband. You see, and you see, everything about her isn't so put together, not from the right place, not pure and perfect, um, not necessarily just the beautiful bride that Isaac took. But you see, this is a picture versus how we do things and how God does things. See, because ultimately, as he sits there and he offers her this living water, what he's offering her is salvation. He's offering her entrance into the kingdom of God to become the what of Christ? The bride. He's offering really to be her husband. He's bringing her into this place of an invitation to be his bride. And what a contrast from Isaac And the search for a bride there where she had to be from the good place, pure, beautiful, perfect, um, just well, uh, sweet, and just just willing and, and, and agreeable in every terms. Jesus sits down and he basically recreates this whole thing, except she's not so pure or beautiful, she's a little snarky, she's not from the right place, but he has the invitation anyway. And that brings us really kind of into this picture. I'm going to hold off on that one real quick. That brings us into Mark here. But before we go into Mark chapter 4, I'd like to go to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah presents a kind of an interesting picture to us. Um, chapter 1, the book of Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But jo- Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down to it to go to them, to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and they cried out to, and, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the, the God will give us a thought to us that we may not perish. So let's go ahead and move into our text here for the morning, which is Mark chapter 4, verse 35. And there was a great calm, and he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And so, again, let's get some context here. Remember, the crowds are just thick. There are thousands of people literally that are on the seashore that are there listening to Jesus' teaching. They're there, they're being healed by him. They're, they're, they're pressing in so much on him that he was afraid that, that like they were going to crush him. And so he's now out on a boat, and he's teaching off of the boat, right? And there are all the crowds of people, and everybody is there, except Jesus tells his disciples, look, um, we're actually leaving here, and we're going across the lake. And ultimately, what we're going to see and what we're going to talk about next week is that they're going across the lake for one guy. For one person, one person who is absolutely unable to do anything for themselves. And Jesus isn't just sticking there with the crowds like we tend to do with the way ministry runs, right? When ministry is all about big crowds and huge, uh, that's what success, we measure it by how many people and how mega the church is and all of those kinds of things but Jesus doesn't look at it that way. You see, he's leaving those crowds and he's going across the lake for one person. Jonah. Jonah had the opportunity to go for a whole nation, a whole nation of people. And he decided, nah, I don't like those people. I don't like them. This seems to be a common theme, actually, if you guys are catching this. As a matter of fact, with the Samaritans, you know, it's this whole thing. And, and, and again, this is a picture of who we are. We, we tend to reach out and like to reach out, and we're quick to reach out to those that we think might fit well with our lives or who we are. And we're, we tend to not go for those that we think might be difficult or problematic or whatever. Um, we tend to reach out into people groups that we like, but not so much ones that we don't. So Jonah has the opportunity to go for a whole nation, And you know what he does? He's supposed to go about 500 miles, 550 miles, I think, kind of roughly northeast. And he goes 2,500 miles. He starts heading 2,500 miles the other direction. Jesus, on the other hand, right, is going for this one guy, this one guy. And he's putting everything behind. And the cool thing, too, is there's some other boats that are with him. Some of those ministry things, some of those hard things. You know, there's always, that's the cool thing, there's always these little boats, and I think that those are like the, the real church, the authentic church is, is going. They're the ones in those little boats that are, they don't know where they're going or why they're going exactly, but they're going because Jesus has said, we're going across the lake, because that's where the ministry's at now. That's where we're headed. We're headed across over there. And so, they get way out over there, and just like on Jonah and Jesus' boat, now there's this storm that arises, Right? This massive storm is just kind of going on, and it's carrying on. And, and, and this storm is, is because, one, on one hand, it's Jesus' obedience that's put everybody in this storm. On the other hand, with Jonah, it's his disobedience that's put him in the storm. But both of them, it's interesting that both of them are asleep in the boat during the storm. And so they, they go and, and, and people go and, and wake both of them up. And Jonah's response is, I mean, he, he doesn't really have much one. The guy's like, look, just get up here and pray to your God because maybe he'll have some mercy on us, right? But Jonah, Jonah doesn't have a, really a, a heart for that. Jonah can't really do anything. There's, there's nothing that Jonah can get up and do. He can get up and he can call upon his God. But you see, God himself can get up and still the storm, and that's exactly what happens with Jesus. You know, so many times we, we feel like that we're in, or we are, not not even we feel like, many times we are in the middle of like the deepest, darkest, hardest storm that we've ever been in. And notice the response or the the, the question that's posed to Jesus is: don't you even care that we're perishing? Because that's how it feels when we're in the middle of it sometimes. When, when it's just dark all around us. And see, these guys don't have no reason to feel this way. Their boat is filling up with water. And they're fishermen. They have experience on, on this lake. They, they know how bad the storms can be. But if they're scared, everybody kind of has a right to be scared kind of a thing. Because they've been in this spot before. But they're saying, look, it's, it, the boat is swamping and it's going down. And Jesus It's just like, he doesn't have a concern. The reason he doesn't have a concern is because he's going exactly where he's supposed to be. He's going exactly into the will of the Father. Jonah has a lot to be worried about because Jonah has a lot of anxiety on his mind because Jonah's going the opposite way of what the will of God for him is. Ultimately, Jonah himself is gonna have to just get thrown overboard, right? To still the sea and then eaten by a whale and in the belly of the whale for three days, right? Right? So you see, it's not an accident that these two things are going on. As a matter of fact, Jesus references these very things. He told the the people that no sign would be given to them except the sign of Jonah. To a wicked and perverse generation, no sign would be given to them except the sign of Jonah, this idea of the belly of the whale for three days, and then ultimately deliverance. You see, they both have a message to deliver, and both of them are the means by which this message, when it's delivered, is going to bring salvation. Jonah has the opportunity, he goes, and he speaks to an entire nation. But if you remember the story, he had no real heart for them. As a matter of fact, he went and did it just because God kind of made him do it. But he had no desire for the repentance of those people. As a matter of fact, after he did it, he was so sure that they wouldn't repent, that he went and sat up on a hill so he could watch God destroy the whole thing. What a different picture from Jesus who stands up and just says, peace, be still. And the circumstances, what would seem to be just uncontrollable, out of control circumstances that is going to land everybody um, to their demise, just, that everybody is about to drown. And Jesus just stands up and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, peace, be still. And I don't know where you're at. Maybe you're in a storm right now. And, and, and maybe you're struggling with that idea and you feel like, look, this whole thing is going under. I want you to just, just stay in the faith that Jesus has told them that they're going to the other side. You see, when he stood up and he says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The reason he's getting after them a little bit there is because he's told them, look, I'm going to get you there. I'm going to get you to the other side. That's where we're going. He, uh, somebody with a, one of the commentaries said, Jesus didn't say you're going to drown in the boat halfway. He said we're going to the other side of the lake. And so he's, the, 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 the call to us isn't to understand. It's never for us to understand. We want to understand when we're in the storm. When we don't get it and we don't understand it and there are circumstances that we didn't ask for and we don't get it, we want to understand and God is not calling us to understand. He's calling us to trust in the middle of it that he will deliver us to the place that he said he will be faithful to deliver us to. But make no mistake, it's not always easy. This walk and this journey that we're on, that it's, it's, we want it to be free of pain and suffering but there's a reality that God is at, the, in, at work in the midst of our pain and suffering, that he's actually doing something in us that actually only happens sometimes in those times and those places. See, like it told us that we're not living in the original intention right now. We're living in the tension of the already but not yet. If you're in Christ, you're, you're there. You're living in eternity. You're, you're eternally Tied and and with him, and your destination is secure. He's going to get you there, but in the in between, in the place of here, sometimes we experience trials and struggles and and suffering, and really hard things. But he's telling us to to not be fearful, to not be afraid, to recognize that that uh, that he's faithful, and that he's the only one. And then their response after he just. Can you imagine after he just took all of the noise and part of this talks about just the noise of the sea, the noise of the storm, and that's the other thing is sometimes there's just so much noise in this world and stuff, but he's the one who can really say to us and to our spirit, just peace, be still, just peace. And and, and we can live in that place of having some peace despite this storm going on around us. And he can actually quiet the wind so that we can actually hear. So imagine going from that to just whoosh, placid and just right there in that place of peace. And, and they were filled with great fear and awe, basically, and they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The Bible tells us that in the end, in in Luke chapter 21, verse 25, it says, "...there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth, distress of nations, in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves." And again, where all of this noise is going on in the world around us, we as his people can live in a place of peace, of recognizing that he is faithful, that he is going to deliver us over it, and that he can quiet the noise of the wind and he can settle the waves around us even right here today. And and, and if that's happened to you, or maybe you need that to happen to you, maybe you need to ask the question, who then is this? Who then is this? Who's able to do this? I'm just going to tell you that the world doesn't have the answers out there. But Jesus has the way to to just take all of this and to bring you, no matter the circumstances of your life, to bring you into a place of peace and even joy in the middle of it. But what does it look like? Well, it looks like this whole story that's been going on from here to here. To today, this story that's totally interwoven, and it has a scarlet thread that runs through the whole of it, and that's God's plan for our redemption. In Genesis 24, what we saw is that after man's rebellion and their disobedience, they tried to place, they tried to create their own covering, maybe just some, some leaves, right? They've they, they made some, a loincloth of leaves, but we all know that if we were all just sitting around with some leaves on, we'd feel pretty exposed still, wouldn't we? We wouldn't feel very covered. We wouldn't feel like, like we truly were in a place. And that's what we do. We, we, we try to just provide our own way. And it's always insufficient to leave us covered. We always know that we're still exposed before a holy and righteous God. But you see, at the end of that chapter of three, we see that God, it says that he, he basically took animals. And those animals had to die. So innocent life, was lost, and blood was shed, and it says that God then created a covering for them, something that was able to truly cover them and to keep them and to sustain them. And, and so that's the cross. The cross is this, this picture that for you and I, what we couldn't do for ourselves, we couldn't provide for ourselves our own salvation, we couldn't be good enough, we couldn't be smart enough, we couldn't earn it, we couldn't purchase it. But God says we can have it. We can have it as a gift and that it's available to whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord. Whoever would go and say, there's a storm all around me and will you wake up and save me? The promise is, is that he'll stand up and say, peace, be still. That his life, given on behalf of our life on the cross, where he paid the penalty for sin in full and now offers to us a relationship. And remember, a relationship is always two, two ways. Two have to agree. If, if only one agrees, remember, that's kidnapping. Can't do that. You have to have two agree into a relationship on God's end. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever would call upon him should, not, should have eternal life, should not perish, right? Right? God has chosen. He's chosen you. He said yes. And he awaits now for anyone here who's never said yes to just say yes, I'll take that deal. I want out of the storm. I want you to quiet this around me. I want you to forgive me, to restore me, to give me new life, to place your spirit inside of me so that I might live differently, so that I might be someone different. You see, because this is why the Bible says you got to get born twice, right? You're born once into the flesh. We're born that second time into the spirit. And what happens is when we receive that, then we're back in relationship with a holy and perfect God. The spirit of God resides in us. And I'm promising you, everything changes at that point. It all changes. If you've never done that, if you've never said yes, if you've never asked for God's gift of salvation, we would encourage you to just ask. It's free. Only a gift, but it's the greatest gift ever. Pray with me if you would, Lord. We just thank you for this day. We thank you for 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 your word, and we thank you that we can see in your word that you always had a plan, that you were always up to things, that nothing was just random, nothing was was there just uh, out of place, but it all has meaning and purpose. That you were doing something from the very beginning. And so, Lord, as we see that and we recognize that, we're just praying that we would respond to that. And those who are believers, Lord, I'm praying that we would just go deeper, that we would recognize the reality of what life is about, that it's, it's not about chasing things that won't satisfy us. It's, it's not about drinking out of the wrong well, thinking that, uh, that we'll find satisfaction there. It's, it's about understanding that, that you have living water, that water that when we drink of, we'll never thirst again. And that, Lord, you've invited us despite the mess that we are, that we aren't the beautiful bride that we're not the perfect one, that we're not all, but, but that we're more of that snarky side of, of, of that. And, and we're messed up and we're not pure and that we've made mistakes, but you invite us anyway. And so Lord, we thank you that that's, that's who you are, that that's your nature and your character is that you've invited anyone, whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord, that you have an open invitation, that you have a place at the table for us. And for that, we are eternally grateful and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.